Hey there, Lions! Did you know that you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content by joining our paid support group, the Lions of Liberty Pride? For as little as $5 a month, you can help us grow this program to new heights. Learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is time for Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Each and every week here on this program, Felony Friday, we focus on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This is our 71st time doing this show, so that means you'll be able to find the links and notes to everything that we're going to talk about on today's show at lionsofliberty.com FF71. My guest today on Felony Friday is Rayford Davis. Rayford served the city of North Charleston Police Department for six years. That included four years as a patrol officer and two as a special victims unit detective. Now, during that time that he was serving in North Charleston, the city of North Charleston was the eighth most dangerous city in America. So he was serving in some some pretty high crime areas. Um, Prior to becoming a police officer, Rayford served in the United States Coast Guard And Rayford has a BS in criminal justice from Charleston Southern University. And since leaving law enforcement, uh, Rayford has become an outspoken advocate for police reform and for the ideas of liberty. He's a member of LEAP, um, formerly known. LEAP was formerly Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Now it is Law Enforcement Action Partnership. I think that's right. New name, same goal, uh, goal is drug reform and criminal justice reform. And you also might recognize Rayford's name. Uh, he previously appeared on, on this show, on the Lions of Liberty podcast, with Mark Clare way back on episode number 73. So Mark is nearing 300 episodes, so that was that was quite a while ago. But we have a lot more to talk about, and I wanted to invite Rayford back on to talk about criminal justice reform and the war on drugs. So Rayford, welcome to Felony Friday. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on and uh, giving me an opportunity to speak out. Yeah, so I was with Mark Clare a couple years ago. That was one of the first uh, podcasts I did after I came out, uh, you know, as a, used to be a former, uh, you know, zealous drug enforcer and then came as a legalization uh, advocate and uh, and. Uh, yes, I'm a former cop now, an anarchist, voluntarist, libertarian, and boy, that was very, I was nervous. I had to come out uh, with with Mark and and talk about those things, uh, and I, I appreciate that opportunity. And and uh, you, you, thank you for your service and what you do in talking about liberty and the and protecting freedom by uh, showing the harms when we take it away from others. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely important, obviously, to have these conversations and to talk about the changes that need to be made. I mean, sometimes, you know, I get frustrated hosting this show and, you know, we'll talk about some of those frustrating scenarios today, um, different things, different problems with the drug war and uh, people really becoming victims of the war on drugs. And before we get into talking about some of those stories and talking about the toxic climate in uh, policing today and the police-civilian interactions um, you did, you know, we were just talking about your your appearance with 
Mark Claire on this show. So was that how long had what was the duration there that you left the police force to you having that interview with Mark? Uh, let's see. Uh, see, I got it in 2007. I got hit and I got hit by a truck, broke my leg. And, and that kind of put me out. Uh, and it really, you know, took me a couple years uh, of going, going, going through that transition. I guess like, a, you know, a lot of people do, uh, you know, kind of liberty wise and, and finding, uh, you know, like the non-aggression principle and, uh, Murray Rothbard or, or, you know, Lou Rockwell or Ron Paul and, and go through that stage Mm -hmm. and, and just kind of realize just, uh, how, uh, just how counterproductive everything had been. It was a, it was a very emotional experience. And like I said, it took me about two years to get uh, to about get through that. So uh, that's, let's see, that was uh, this really about let's see seven years. So so yeah, you, after you, after so you, I got out in two thousand seven, and you yeah. had so when you were still a cop, you had started to uh, to read a little bit little bit about the ideas of liberty. You started down the path somewhat, I guess. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I th- I thought I was, you know, I considered myself like a good, uh, compassionate, conservative Christian, uh, and would I would have, you know, considered myself, you know, really a liberty. She, I've, you know, what I voted for Harry Brown before okay. I became a police officer. <laughs> so, so it was it was ingrained in you. You it, might not it, even it, know it, it, it was yeah. it was it was there. It, it it was there, but it still took me really several years of getting out. You're almost like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Saul and the biblical Saul on his way to Damascus, where you're kind of blinded, and it's not until you kind of get out of it until you can actually just see how counterproductive uh, everything you do is, and and then to be able to admit that uh, it's a hard process. It takes some time. One thing that I wanted I wanted to ask you about, just thought of it now. Um, I had on a couple weeks ago uh, Dominic Izzo, uh, another uh, former cop who he's he's been a recent outspoken advocate for policing reform and speaking out against the drug war in the Chicago area. And one thing he talked about was point systems that his police department used in order to, you know, sort of force cops to pursue certain different types of crimes more, you know, more on the revenue generation side. Uh, more than anything else. When you were a police officer, did you see any of that? Was there a point system or something similar with, within your department that your uh, chief used to dictate behavior of the of his officers? Not as uh, like specific to each officer, uh, but we we were a you know get tough, get guns and drugs off the street, uh, you know department, and we you know we had real crime. Uh, but then we said, well, you know what, if we get the guns and dope, that will prevent the crime. And so we need to show that, w- you know, we're going to go out there and lock people up. And that's so that's what we did. We went out on the streets and we hustled. And, you know, was it a crack pipe? Oh, I, uh, I, I listened to Dominic Isidore's, uh uh, interview. I suggest everyone go listen to that and just talk about just the small things that law enforcement does. The no light on the bicycle arrest and to turn that into like some kind of felony charge on a drunk. Oh yeah, been there, done that. We all do. It happens every day in America, millions of times. Uh, jaywalking and try to build that into a some type of stop uh, and into a search to look for a little baggy weed, uh, lock them up, 
And so it's not a specific uh, stat to your performance, but that was our mission. And, you know, we did have a little sheet, stat sheet, and we'd mark them down. It was kind of informal if you weren't performing, uh, you know, if you weren't uh, making the rest and the activity that other officers were. They, hey, are, you know, you know, you're not uh, pulling your weight. Uh, but it's that whole mindset. It's the total upside down uh, from the very fundamentals of policing. You don't measure yourself by arrest. You measure yourself by the absence of crime and disorder. And, and so just that very metric, that's one of the basic uh, Sir Robert Peel's principles of policing from the 1830s. Uh, and uh, all law enforcement violates that to this day. And, and you look at um, these little uh, broken windows type crimes and even the entire drug war is that's almost like a pre-crime where that's not necessarily a crime, but we're going to arrest you for that in order to prevent some potential future violence. So it's, it's really this dystopian, uh, we're going to we're you know, you have drugs, so you may somehow maybe kind of contribute to some type of crime in the future. So we're going to arrest you for that now. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's that, it's that upside down. So, and maybe this is a difficult question to answer, but I'm going to ask I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think, I mean, your interactions with your fellow police officers when you were a cop, I mean, I don't know if you still keep in touch with, uh, you know, people that, who are still in law enforcement, but do you think most police officers sort of reluctantly go down this path? When I say reluctantly, obviously, I mean, they're I mean, they're still doing it, so I'm not really giving them, you know, giving, you know, giving them credit for for uh, resisting um, enforcing these revenue generating um, offenses and whatnot, and you know, taillight offenses and all the stuff we're talking about. But do do, do you think other police officers, so maybe maybe they see the light, but they're just kind of just kind of covering their eyes and, and putting their head in the sand, just maybe just to keep getting that paycheck, or maybe they think the good they're doing outweighs the bad. Just what, what's your what's your gut feel or your your uh, experience with that? Well, I would say you know yes to all of the above. It it, it is complicated. Uh, you know, one of the things is you don't really realize. Uh, just kind of how counterproductive uh, your efforts are as a police officer till maybe you're not a, f- uh, a few years in and and then you're kind of you're kind of stuck you you have I like with me personally uh, you know I, I start to really get disillusioned with it uh, but here is this career you know I had begged my wife please let me be a cop and uh, you know I had sacrificed a lot my whole family and now I have a house and a kid and a car and I have a career path and then I'm just gonna just walk away from that for these nebulous, uh, you know, well, I just have some, you know, just kind of liberty reasons or, or, or whatever. Uh, I'm just going to walk away from all that and, and do what? Um, and then you, this is what holds a lot of cops is they all cops are good cops. They, uh, and of course they all believe they are. And I certainly did. And most are well-intentioned. I certainly was. And, and but so you worry that, well, if the next guy comes, comes in and takes my place he'll be worse he won't be as conscientious as me and he might actually cause cause more harm to the community you know so i better stick it out and minimize uh, and kind of work the system as best i can to to minimize the harm that it causes to others 
Yeah, I guess I guess that's sort of a, a human flaw that, that we have. Um, a lot of us think that even though we're in a system that might be broken, and, and I think to a degree they might actually be right, police officers or whatever field you're working in, people who are working in the government, if you're working for the NSA or, or the CIA, and all of a sudden you start to understand the ideas of liberty, start to understand really the consequences, the um, sort of unintended consequences of, of your actions working in that role. Rather than step out of that role, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, it's probably easy to come to peace with the fact that, okay, I'll stay in this role. At least I understand what I'm doing, uh, the harm that I might be causing, and can s- sort of mitigate that harm. And there might be a lot to be said for that. That might be a, a a valid thing because somebody else could come into that role that is a complete tyrant and would abuse the system more. So it's it's I don't think there's a, a clear line there. I think, it's a, I think that's a really good point you made, a really good point that you brought up there. I do want to talk about, so there was an article you wrote for the Libertarian Institute back in December of 2016, end of last year, talking about the policing, the police presence at the Standing Rock protests. And we don't really have to go into to details uh, of the article or details of that protest. I really just kind of want to get your opinions on uh, really police interactions at protests in general and when force is right to be used and when when it uh, when it is actually needs to be used in order to maybe protect property or to keep uh, other individuals safe. So obviously at Standing Rock, police got pretty aggressive with the tactics, I think, with the uh, water cannons and and uh, the, the use of other devices like that. So just, I guess, a high level question as a former police officer who I, I don't know if you when you were still serving if you had any interactions and served in any protests but maybe if you did you can you can lend uh lend some guidance there but as a former cop looking at stuff like this how would you advise police officers to conduct themselves in these protests you know i i would say really when when especially like with what you had at standing rock uh the Really, the moment the law enforcement squares off like that and lines up, suits up, you know, their their dress look like stormtroopers, uh, you know, and and you know, arm up and defend themselves. It's because they've already made so many mistakes that that it's kind of it's on them from the beginning, and they have really escalated it up to that posi- to that position, uh, and. And there's no lack uh, – there's there's no real accountability uh, with with law enforcement and liability. Who pays for that? Uh, you know, so nobody's really paying for it. You might, if, if the, you know, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline Corporation, if they are actually paying for that, all that security right out of their pocket, they might have tried to, you know, work in a more uh, nonviolent way. And violence is the most – expensive form of dispute resolution it costs the most money and so uh the, the, yes yeah, so the first thing total you know lack of of liability and so it's easy for law enforcement to just keep escalating and they have no accountability and 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 that's basic how like the use of force continuum is trained and whether that's with a large group or on a one-on-one level where police officers, if they meet a certain amount of resistance, they can, they can take that 
they can meet it with the same resistance or even take it one step higher. And and police officers, so you're a justified and you kind of reverse engineer that and you can actually manipulate that use of force continuum process to create more violence and to create, uh, you know, more uh, physical interaction between people because you have you have no duty to deescalate. And 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 then when you're measured by your arrest or your activity then you then you have no incentive whatsoever to to actually de-escalate a situation, and so and they're in law enforcement and they can contribute they can do that and and you see how they manipulated uh, the crowds and just uh, a lot of different things to they're actually the ones kind of initiating the violence shooting uh, you know videographers uh, uh, you know with a uh, you know rubber bullets and those type of things. Uh, and so they actually, they're escalating it themselves and then they can turn around and see, look what we had to do to these people. And, and, and um, and the police officers, they kind of dehumanize themselves. Look what you made me do. You know, I was, I had to beat you down and spray you and I'll lock you up just because you were protesting. And now look at you, you're all this muddy, dirty looking person that nobody wants to have any sympathy for. But actually the police officers pretty much uh, created all of that or, you know, made no effort whatsoever uh, to deescalate it because they have no, you know, financial incentive and, and uh, don't have to worry about liability to a high degree. Yeah, there's sort of a, a parallel here. You know, as a as a, a libertarian, I think you'll you'll appreciate this. I'm seeing a little parallel between the policing tactics at a place like Standing Rock, these aggressive tactics, where actually they're pouring flames on the protests. They're causing more people to get behind it. People see this, see this on TV, they see the pictures, they see the YouTube videos, and they say, "Oh my God, look what they're doing to those protesters up at Standing Rock. We gotta, we got to go up there and help them." It's it's blowback. It's very similar to the United States foreign policy, where you look at you know stuff that happens over in the Middle East, over in Iraq or Yemen or Afghanistan, where we're you know, drone bombing, going after terrorists, of course, in, in in air quotes. And when you're going after terrorists, of course, they take out a, a church or a hospital or a wedding procession, <clears throat> and of, and then you know that'll create more terrorists and these other. These terrorists will go out and maybe attack some U.S. troops, and you know that'll justify the the presence of having more U.S. troops over there. So it's it's a vicious cycle, and it's there's definitely some parallels between the two. Well, I you know, and I do worry. You 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 look at the the code access pipeline uh, protest, uh, and you look at these current uh, what is it Antifa and whatever uh, uh, those protests. You see those and you, you just look at that and wonder if they're not being encouraged and manipulated, uh, you know, on some level to, to create uh, just destabiliz- destabilization and conflict, uh, you know, within America on certain levels and get people uh, polarized to where they can't even think out a process what, regardless of what what side you're on. Uh, I would, you know, ask police officers, though. Have you ever, you know, looked in the past and you look at pictures of officers, you know, like I said, dressed up just like Darth Vader stormtroopers. And, you know, have anybody in history, government, you are a government agent. 
standing on a line against individual citizens, your own free citizens of your country. You are a armed government agent and being ordered to to uh, to evict those people or push them out of the streets. When have you when has that ever have you ever been on the right side of history? Any any person, a uh, government agent like that in history, when have they ever been on the right side? Why do you think you're you're somehow different today? That's that's a really good point. I mean, you look back in the, the history textbooks, um, you look back at stuff that's happened in uh, com- communist countries and in, in uh, Soviet Union or over in China. Um, it's yeah. You will look at the Dakota Access, uh, Dakota Access Pipeline with the protest with the with the natives. When is it, when is a, uh, the American government ever been the good guys with them? You know, and and you're you think that somehow today you're you're different or you're you're special just because well, you know, we're modern and today no you're you're going to look back in history and you're going to be you know the brutal mindless savage that just just followed orders and. And participated in, you know, in the harming of your of your own community members, very people that you're you were sworn to protect. Yeah, it's it's definitely concerning, and I definitely agree with you. I, I'm not going to call you one of those wacky uh, libertarian conspiracy theorists uh, talking about could there be people uh, stirring up and incentivizing some of this uh, uh, some of the reaction from Antifa and and, and the other side I, I think it's it's absolutely a, it could be happening I think I think it's we're already divided without that but I think there absolutely could be some uh, some uh, elitists behind the scenes um, maybe maybe paying some people to protest uh, it's happened in the past why wouldn't it continue to happen um, yeah well I would say well, you know when you talk about paid protesters what are the what are the cops they're all paid 100%. They're paid to be there and pay and again, you're paid by the government. So you might be doing the right thing maybe, but you know, the the, the odds are odds are low. <laughs> and and so you think about that as a police officer when you're standing on that line and you're going against a bunch of paid agitators. There may be some in there. There also almost certainly are. Uh, but what are you? Absolutely. Great point there. Great point there. I, I want to talk about a uh, a case that I, I emailed you uh, before before to uh, look over. It sort of ties in with what you talked about with your last interview with Mark when you were talking about the war on drugs. Let's just talk about this case real quickly, and I want to ask you some questions about it. So this happened in York County, PA. A judge up there sentenced a heroin dealer to the maximum probable prison sentence. And this heroin dealer, he was actually – it was actually – uh, the judge stacked two sentences together. So this dealer had sold a uh, bag of heroin or maybe multiple bags of heroin to uh, to a woman, a uh, woman's name, Arissa Clymer, uh, the heroin dealer, Mackenzie Reese. Um, and this uh, this woman ended up ODing. She, she overdosed. And what happened in the sentencing, this guy was sentenced to 20 to 40 years for a drug delivery resulting in death conviction. And then on top of that was sentenced an additional 17, uh, excuse me, seven to 14 years on a heroin possession with intent to deliver. And the judge stacked those two together, um, which gave, gave this, uh, gave this man 27 to 54 years. I think maybe the longest sentence, there was a comment in the article, uh, the deputy prosecutor saying this is one of the longest sentences maybe for a drug crime like this in Pennsylvania uh, state history. 
And another aspect to this that I do want to touch on is the woman in this case that overdosed. She had a history of uh, pain management issues. She had scoliosis, had back surgeries, had some rods inserted in her back, and became addicted to opioids uh, through her doctor. They were legally prescribed to her, and then she got into heroin for, I'm assuming that once the doctor knew that she was addicted, took that away, so she was only left to to go to heroin. So a, cu- a couple, you know, lots of different moving parts here, lots of layers to this. Let's just start at the at the first question here. In your opinion, is this a is this a just conviction? Do you think that drug dealers should be going to prison for for supplying people with drugs? Uh, you know, absolutely not. It's a free country, uh, and you know as consensual adult activity you know use and trade of a substance even if it is potentially harmful and deadly heroin people have a right to do that here in america and and anywhere in the world and that's that's freedom and liberty now along with that comes a big dose of personal responsibility uh, I would like to point out that this that this illegal drug transaction happened while drugs were illegal and have been for 40 years. And we've been, air quotes here, getting tough since I've been alive. And we have locked up millions of people and nothing has changed. As a matter of fact, the drug enforcement has gotten worse. So we've uh, that very prohibition that you are sending a message with by locking up uh, Reese McKenzie with, uh, all you're doing is perpetuating the destruction. And there will be another Arisa uh, climber, uh, climber uh, that will die. Uh, I, I recall um, we had – I got called one day um, – we had a person that was overdosed, and he was at a local emergency clinic, and he was being combative and, and disruptive. And before we got there, of course, he fled. Uh, so we knew something was up. Uh, went to the – he was hanging out. This dude was hanging out like a Motel 6. He was a dealer slash user just like this this uh, Reese McKenzie uh, guy. And, and then a few minutes later, we got a call from the local Waffle House, and we went over there, and uh, – a woman had locked herself in the bathroom. Uh, we got the bathroom unlocked and went in there. And uh, a young lady, very much like Arissa, was uh, dead on the floor. Uh, needle still in her hand where she had injected herself uh, with, the, with the very same, uh, you know, bad batch or hot dose of heroin. Uh, this, this was, a, you know, a mother of, of children. Uh, she was a, she was a daughter, you know, uh, herself. I mean, she was somebody it was definitely struggling, uh, but she was loved and cared for. And, uh, you know, she died right there as, as inglorious as you could, uh, in, in the bathroom of the Waffle House. And God, where's, I was so angry at that guy. And the, the, the dude, he was just as, just like Reese McKinney, just a scrawny, nasty dude. Uh, I'm like, man, you know, you, you really just want to just bury someone like that who sold that to her. Now, he had almost killed himself. But see, we, we created that with the prohibition. And so but Pennsylvania, the overdose death rate for, in Pennsylvania 
is a t- a 26, 26 people out of 100,000 uh, will die uh, uh, overdose death rate. Um, is that and, is that high compared is that high compared to other states? That's 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 high. Other states are higher, but that one that one is high and it is climbing. And and all of this is going on as we get tougher, the death rates go up. Uh, I look at Portugal, the country of Portugal legalized or decriminalized all drugs 13 years ago. And so uh, you are not ar- drugs are still illegal, but you're not arrested for possession anymore. So so possession of all drugs, even heroin or fentanyl is legal in, you know, in small amounts. Their overdose death rate. Three. So 26 to three. That's the difference. So the tougher you get, you're going to have more deaths. And so you drove this very, this very prohibition that you, that the people want to support and getting tough. Well, you just drove Arissa to her death uh, because you put her into that black market. And that's where she had to go. As soon as she became addicted uh, to the drugs that were prescribed to her, and she very well may need just in a higher dosage, but they cut her off. Or it was too expensive. And so she has to go to the black market. And then she – so she uses heroin. And, well, heroin, you know if you inject it, then it will go about twice as far. And so you don't have to spend quite as much money. And so that's how people start injecting it is you know, it's because it's more cost effective. And see, now you're, you know, now you're stuck. And then she has to worry about you know, inconsistent levels or just not even – Getting it, you know, if she stays off it for a couple of days and then goes back, her tolerance is way down. She could take the same dose and kill herself or mix it with something else that she's not sure of. Uh, that's how people die. Um, and and so we've never we've never stopped it. We have never stopped. Drugs are more plentiful uh, today than they ever were. They're cheaper. They're easier to get. And this is after, you know, it's been a hundred years since the Harrison Narcotic Act and you know, 46 years since we started, you know, Nixon's drug war and we're still having these, these people die, uh, unnecessarily. And a guy like Reese McKenzie, he would never, if, if drugs were legal, th- he would not be the dude selling them, you know, out of the, out of the motel six, uh, mixing it with God knows what, you know, it, it, it people could get a consistent dose, uh, and, Injected in sanitary conditions, and now they may be addicted, but they're not dead. Right. Yeah. It's it's it's. There's a big misconception around heroin heroin overdoses that people think that it's the heroin uh, that's that's causing the overdose. And a lot of the times, like you said, it's not. It's what it's mixed with, what it's cut with. You know, making it hot, making it unstable, something that they're they're not used to having if it's fentanyl or or whatever else. And I do want to point out that I did have on uh, one of your uh, colleagues at LEAP, uh, Regina Huffnagel, back in episode number 41. And she brought up a program in Switzerland that I had never heard of. And it's been around since the, I think, the mid-90s, where it's a prescription heroin program to help help addicts get off of heroin. And they've never had one overdose, never had one person die. 
Yeah, they've, I'm sure they've had people drop out of the program, but they've also helped a lot of people to wean them off of heroin using prescription-grade heroin, just smaller, smaller doses to get them off. It's amazing that in today's world, in 2017, where we're really a global society, we should be you know, trading ideas like this. We talk about <clears throat> the state solution, states being incubators to test ideas. Heck, we have a whole globe to, to test ideas. We need to use the free market to, to find the best way to, you know, to to make drugs safer so people don't overdose and then and then uh, allow that to be implemented. But I just wanted to point out that, that situation in Switzerland. It is happening in Canada as well. They have prescription-grade heroin. And obviously, I'd love for the, you know, the drugs to be legalized, bring the stuff out of the shady back alleys of the black market forward so this stuff doesn't happen. It'll make it safer. But if we can't do that, let's at least at least take a small step forward and get some other uh, treatment for these addicts, some other ways to, to help them from having to having to buy from a, uh, a shady dealer like uh, Mackenzie Reese in, in, a, uh, you know, in a shady Motel 6 that ends up killing them. But uh, de- definitely, you know, definitely agree with you there. And I, I do want to ask you one more thing about the <clears throat> excuse me, one more thing about the war on drugs. As the war on drugs as a whole, do you think you know, as a libertarian, as, as a former police officer, do you think that it's possible that we could just end the war on drugs tomorrow and the next day we would see a positive difference that society would get better and better and better? You know, a- absolutely. And when 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 we say when I say you know in the in the war on drugs, uh, absolutely stop arresting people for that. Uh, let people out of prison uh, that have that are in currently incarcerated. Uh, you know, if if you just let it up, and you have to. People believe that prohibition is some like like some ultimate level of regulation, and prohibition is is. Opposite is the pure abdication of all regulation. We cannot regulate drugs that are illegal. You have to legalize them in order to regulate them. And and so that's what makes people safer. And and it's just you and then you look at what's the difference between heroin and oxycontin? You know, they they both have their harms, uh, but you know. Pharmacists don't go around doing drive-bys on each other. We don't have, you know, these uh, murderous cartel gangs, uh, you know, cornering the oxy market. But they do the heroin market. Uh, so all all of that violence will go would go away uh, when when you legalized them, and then you would have we. In the United States, we would have to reduce our prison population by eighty percent just to equal the prison population in Europe. So 80%, 80%, just if just to equal Europe. And, and, and that, yeah, in, in, in Europe, they're just, they're a bunch of nanny state socialists over there. This is America. We're, you know, free liberty works, doesn't it? I mean, even, uh, you know, people that aren't libertarian, and if you're a good red-blooded American, you know that liberty and freedom makes you safer. And, and, and we arrest at and incarcerate five to seven times more than these other countries. So that's how far we've gone. So whenever you think, well, we need to get tough. Yeah, we've, we've, we're doing that right now. And we have, we have the uh, police state incarceration industrial complex to prove it. And 
the increased death rates. Yeah. T- talking about Liberty Works, it reminds me of, I think it was 2012 uh, during Ron Paul's set, maybe 2011 during Ron Paul's second campaign for president uh, for the Republican nomination. And it was at a, uh, a debate, I think it might have been South Carolina, actually. And they were talking about drug reform, and they said, you know, "Mr. You know, Doctor Paul, you you talk about that you would legalize drugs. Would you legalize heroin tomorrow?" And he said something to the effect of, "Of course I would." What? And then you know, you get there's booze from the crowd, and he goes, "What? Are you all afraid that if he, if if heroin was legalized, that you all go out and start doing it?" It's like, I mean, are, people just don't think these things through, and you know, we don't we don't no. need a nanny state. We don't need the the, the state to step in. And tell people how to live their lives. I mean. Right. And all of this drug – and this is why I'm, you know, I'm not a big drug user. I would, I think that people should live their life and try to avoid them as, be, as best I'm, they can. I'm not advocating uh, for drug use either. I, yeah. Correct. Uh, now, but the, the drug enforcement – and that is just, that is just the, the fig leaf to cover up the oppression. And that's what it's used for. Uh, if you ask police officers, you know, to I want you to go into a particular community and go oppress them, and cops would go, "No way, never, I would not going to do that." But you tell officers, "I want you to go in that community and go look for drugs," <laughs> and, and then and then you know come back when you're finished. Well, they go in there and they're never going to be done, and all they do is cause hate and discontent and destroy that community. And so that's what we've done, and we've we've known that. Uh, that's what drug enforcement, you know, particularly – well, you know, from the very Harrison Narcotic Act, it was for, uh, you know, the drug-crazed Negroes and the lazy uh, Mexicans and the, the evil Chinamen that are stealing white women. And and then, you know, even, uh, you know, in Nixon's own administration, they were saying, hey, uh, you know, these uh, – you know the blacks and their civil rights agitation, and and these anti-war folks. Uh, we're going to use the drug war to crush them. Is basically yeah. what they said. And that's, and so and that's, that's a fact. That's, that's and, a fact. yeah, that's that what released, that's what yeah. they've done. And mm-hmm. and police officers, we know this, and ye, and yet we perpetuate those same policies, and we're surprised at the racial disparities. We're surprised that these communities that we've that we've enforced uh, these drug uh, drug laws on are now destabilized uh, just because oh we're not racist anymore or you know uh, doesn't doesn't mean that we're not uh, perpetuating that same policy yeah it's, it's under a, the guy uh, under the guise of of drug enforcement you know 10 5 10 20 years from now people are going to look back on this period this long period in u.s history of drug prohibition and just cringe what the heck were you people thinking our children and grand and grandchildren were think that we were all insane for doing this to ourselves for locking our fellow man in cages but it's happened it's happened and it's uh it's our job as as uh, as libertarians to uh help to to educate our fellow man to to find our way out of this so rayford is doing that and i want to thank you for for coming on the show again and speaking with the Lions of Liberty audience, uh, unfortunately we're out of time. I'm gonna have to have you ba- have you back on because I, I told you about the game that we play. Is this a crime? And we don't have time to play it now, but I have to have you back on because I, I think that'd be a lot of fun for you to uh, to talk through um, some of these uh, different different cases and and crimes from uh, from your perspective as a former cop who's also a libertarian. So we'll have to have to have you back on soon. 
But I want to give you a chance before you go to to talk about uh, where my audience can find you on social media and any new projects that you're that you're working on currently. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Rayford D, and also uh, post some articles at at Libertarian Institute. Uh, you can see. Um, my article that you mentioned about the police officers at Standing Rock, also an article about uh, you know murder in service of the drug war uh, that I wrote uh, recently at Libertarian Institute. And you can check out – there's thousands of cops like me. I'm not the only one. And, and these guys run the political sp- uh, uh, spectrum, uh, conservative, uh, progressive, uh, libertarian like myself over at LEAP. Uh, yeah. We changed your name. We're just kind of expanding into more police abuse uh, type venues to talk about at uh, at Leap. That's uh, Police for Reform. You can find us there. And uh, there's there's a lot of guys. I'm not the only one. All right, Rayford. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, John. What a great guy Rayford Davis is. Truly a warrior for the truth. And also a libertarian to boot. Um, it's all—it's always nice to have to bring on these former police officers who have been through fighting the war on drugs, seen the tactics that cops are using on the street. Um, it was good to bring on. We had on Michael Wood back uh, several months ago, and we had on more recently Dominic Izzo, and now Rayford Davis. Three police officers, all against the war on drugs, all against the police tactics being used to throw these nonviolent people in jail, to ruin lives, to ruin families, just to cause uh, really destruction throughout the fabric of society. The difference between the three, Michael Wood is more of a leftist, a progressive. Um, If you haven't heard that interview where I had him on, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. I'll link to that on the show notes page. Also, if you want to go directly to that interview, you can find it on our website at lionsofliberty.com slash FF40. That was the 40th episode. If you want to find the interview with Dominic Izzo, that was more recently, that was a couple weeks ago, that is at lionsofliberty.com slash FF69. So I want to encourage you to go back and check out those interviews, similar in many ways, but also very different in the ways that, in the ideology of each of these three former cops. Woods being more of a progressive, Dominic Izzo being more of a traditional cop, an old school cop, who really just came to the understanding, came to the realization, the way police are treating civilians is just wrong. That the war on drugs is wrong, it's being used to generate revenue, and it's really doing nothing to actually serve the public. The people like Dominic Izzo was trying to serve. The reason that he joined the force was to serve people. He was actually knocking people down and destroying families and locking up innocent, nonviolent people. And then lastly, we had this interview today with Rayford Davis. And Rayford is a libertarian. He's a Rothbardian. He's an anarchist. And he has a really good grasp of the uh, non-aggression principle. He understands that you shouldn't use force against people. And that's great. All three of those perspectives are outstanding to have. I really appreciate Rayford's perspective, especially for this show. This being, of course, a libertarian podcast, it is nice to uh, hear a former cop who really learned about the ideas of liberty while they were still on the force, and he did get he did get hit by a car. That's what eventually that's what eventually removed him from the force. 
he probably would have. Well, actually, I'm sure he would have left eventually anyway if he hadn't hadn't been hit by the car that got him out of the forest a little bit sooner. I want to thank Rayford for coming on. Awesome to have him on the show today. He's a uh, he's a great guy. We did talk a lot about the war on drugs today, and I've decided I did mention this in the forum in our uh, Facebook group, uh, our the Lions of Liberty forum. Speaking of that, you should probably join the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you haven't joined already, you can do that by going on Facebook, putting Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top, and we'll get you approved as long as you have a profile picture and you look like a, uh, a real person and you look like a sane person. That's important, too. But in the Facebook group, somebody posted an article from Vox. I wouldn't recommend that anyone read Vox, and I the name's escaping me. Right now, who posted the article? But they even said something like, "I don't normally read Vox, but uh, you know, kind of the breadcrumbs led me back to this article, which which does happen." And I gave him a hard time saying that, you know, that's that that's a likely story, but uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll take it for his word. No libertarian should be reading Vox, but that doesn't mean that you know these articles shouldn't be brought to our attention to refute. I think that's a good thing. So the title of the article is, "I used to support legalizing all drugs, then the opioid epidemic happened." So I'm going to refute that article, and I'm going to talk about it in our Lions Pride group. In order to get access, you're going to have to join the Lions Pride, and the way to do that is you can go to lionsofliberty.com support and join for the lowest amount is $5 per month. For that $5, uh, you'll get access to all of our exclusive content, including my episode refuting this article. You'll also get access to... Our Conspiracy Theory Roundtables, Brian did a Rand Pluses and Minuses special a little while back, and Mark's had a couple times where he had some extra questions with his guests. We had a an extra Felony Friday episode I had with Mark and Brian. So we've, we've had a lot, of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of excess content, and we've released some interviews early. So those are the perks just for $5, plus you get a discount at the Lions of Liberty store, lionsofliberty.store. Be sure to check that out. And if you want to contribute a little more, $10, $25, you'll get more perks, free t-shirt, free koozie, and at $25, you get direct access to us, monthly conference call to help plan the show, talk about the direction of the show, give us advice, you know, talk about whatever the heck you want to. Uh, you get to, to you get a full conference call with us once a month for that $25 level. So I want to encourage you guys to check that out. I want to encourage you guys to share this show. The reason that we do this every day, the reason that I produce this show every single Friday is to grow the show, to reach more ears. And and I really appreciate if you share the show, first of all. But also, if you haven't, go to iTunes and uh, give us a uh, five-star ranking, leave a review, and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of our three shows. Of course, we have... Every Monday, Mark Clare, our flagship program, interviewing some of the greatest minds in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Brian McWilliams with Electric Liberty Land, uh, where he talks about movies, culture, liberty, everything under the sun. It's a great show. Check it out. If you haven't listened, I don't know why you haven't. Listening to this show, you should be listening to Electric Liberty Land. You should be listening to Mark Clare every Monday. So be sure to subscribe so you get all three of those. That's all I have for today, guys. Thank you for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.